You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Okay, good evening, and welcome to class number five, His Paradoxes. If you thought anything until now was simple, well, put on your caps for today's class as we're going to go through some more philosophical generated ideas and questions and I, that we're going to be discussing today. Today we're going to get a little deeper into these concepts and plunge into the concept of the nature of God. Today we're going to talk about some what we want to call paradoxes, mysteries of, that have uh, begged the answers of sages and philosophers and theologians throughout the times and have pondered for the past thousands of years. And today we're going to try to fit it all in into just one little quick tidbit of a class, so even though we may not give it full justice, because every single one of these questions today can take an entire course of an entire class, but we're going to find the most um, concise, direct answer to these questions. Some of them might take a little longer to explain and to elaborate, so if you don't really get, really get the complete answer, there's more to discuss. As we know, the more you learn, the more you learn that you need to learn. So... Today we're going to talk about, so on our menu for today, we're going to ask our first question, can God create a rock that he can't lift? Does, God, does God's foreknowledge preclude our free choice? Is there anything that God finds difficult to do? And if God has decided to do something, can we change his mind? So let's see if we can get to some of the answers by some of these perplexing questions. And if we can't get to a whole answer, at least let's try to get to some of what we don't know about it. But let's find something that will also take away a meaningful lesson from it as well. So let's start with the first big question for today. Can God create a rock that he can't lift? This philosophical paradox probably has many different versions, and I'm sure you've heard different versions of this question, led by different philosophers, Jewish philosophers I'm talking about, for centuries. And there were two different aspects of this question and in two different ways of looking at the same question. The first way of looking at the question was a creation-related question. What do I mean by a creation-related question? The question usually can be, can God create a human being by the same person going north and the same person going south at the same time? Can God fit the elephant in the eye of a needle while still keeping the needle the same size and the elephant the same size? Can God make 2 plus 2 equal 5? And things of that nature. Can God make, can God make, can, can God win a chess game while following the rules of chess? Or make you win even while you're not supposed to lose? Or all these type of kinds of questions, we would call them creation-related questions. But then there are something which is called God-related questions. God-related questions is what we would call, can God limit himself to be finite? Can God replicate himself? Can God limit himself and still be considered infinite? Can God make himself something that he can't do? Can God create a rock that he can't lift? And these what we would call God-related philosophical questions. So we have two types of questions here. We have the creation-related question, and we have the God-related question. And to sum it all up, what these questions are basically saying is, 
Does God's omnipotence imply that he can accomplish feats that are seemingly logically impossible? The very fact that I call God infinite, omnipotent, or that he's able to do everything and anything and nothing's within it out of his character, does that mean that God then, is there anything that God can't do? And philosophers have created this type of scenarios and questions throughout the times, and there were two different types of responses that were generally given. There was the rationalist response, and then there was the Kabbalistic response. Let's start with the rationalist response. The rationalist response, which was for most of Jewish philosophers, and again, when I talk about philosophers here, I'm talking about Jewish philosophers. In Hebrew, it's called Sifrei Chakira, ways of philosophy. For example, Maimonides was considered a Jewish philosopher. The Kuzari was a Jewish philosopher. This is what we call typically Jewish philosophers. Even though Maimonides did write about Kabbalah and was a Kabbalist as well, many of his works were strictly from a philosophical, Jewish philosophical perspective. So we're not talking about heresy, God forbid, in any shape or form. Most Jewish philosophers in the Middle Ages concluded that God's omnipotence means that God can do what is physically impossible. Meaning, God can split the sea. God can make a rock of water. God can make many different miraculous events. He can make night extend to day, day extend to night, and so on and so forth. He can cause bread to fall from the sky, water to come out of a brush, whatever it may be. All these type of kinds of events, he can change nature. But, he can't do something which is logically impossible. There's two things. That means, the way the philosophers looked at it was that God can do something which is physically impossible, bread falling from the sky, changing the way we understand things, making, crossing the Red Sea, whatever you want to call it, but at the same time, if something is logically impossible, for example, 2 plus 2 equals 5, can't, God can't make 2 plus 2 equal 5. Why? Because logic will always stay the same. Similarly, a person can't be simultaneously riding north and south at the same time, because it's a physical thing that the person is doing at the moment, and therefore God can't make an irrational type of behavior. That, they would argue, is impossible. And therefore, according to them, it is not a limitation of God's omnipotence to say that he can't do logical impossibilities happen. Let's see it in the words of Maimonides. Text number one on page 142. Maimonides says as follows. The inability to accomplish the inability Maimonides the inability to accomplish something that is beyond one sphere does not constitute imperfection we would not call someone weak if they are unable to lift a thousand talents so too we would not consider God to be imperfect because he can't transform himself into a body. So just a little side note here. The word talents doesn't mean as in the talent that a person has. Talent is a weight of gold, which would today uh, be a value of about 60. So a thousand talents would be around 30 tons. Every talent will be about 60 pounds. So if you do the math, we'll make it about 30 tons. You wouldn't call them what Maimonides is saying here is, the human being not being able to lift 30 tons, do you say he's a weakling? No, it's just not what human beings do. It's out of your purview. It's not in your 
spectrum. It's not what you're even expected to do. It doesn't even walk into your qualification. The same idea Maimonides is, is saying, God not being able to make a person ride north and south at the same time doesn't mean that God's lacking anything. That's just not what God does. God not being able to make 2 plus 2 equal 5 is not a deficiency in God. doesn't make God any smaller. It's just not what God is. God is not that individual, is not that entity. God has nothing to do with logical changing of logical things. There's a creation of a world where rational things happen and logical things happen, and that's the way God made it. So what we see over here is, according to Maimonides, is that the concept of 2 plus 2 equals 5, or the concept of a person riding north and south at the same time, is not to say it's a deficiency in God, but on the following, what we're saying is, so-and-so is strong, we don't mean that he can lift up the Empire State When we're defining God as infinite or omnipotent and so on, it's within the realm of God's purview of what he does. So therefore, when we talk about inherent oxymorons, when we talk about can God create a rock that he can't lift or something of that nature, are not in that realm are not even talking about what God is. It's not even within God's purview. And therefore they say, and therefore, because of that, God can't make 2 plus 2 equal 5. God can, and the same thing as we've said before, the same way a human being is not considered weak. If he can't lift the Empire State Building, God can't make 2 plus 2 equal 5. doesn't mean that there's a deficiency in the greatness of God. What's the mystical response? The Kabbalistic response, if you want to call it. The Kabbalistic response is one that we can find that is mentioned by Rabbi Shlomo ben Adaris. He was a student of Nachmanides. He was a great commentator, scholar, doctor. He was the leader of the Jews of Spain in the 13th century. And he believes that the, when we take the rationalist approach, means to assume that the very fact that I say that God cannot do something because it's irrational, assumes that I believe God is rational. Who said God is rational? The mystical approach says that even if the God, even if the feat is logically doesn't make sense, 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 5, you can't explain it. How can God do it? The mystical approach is God can do everything, even things which are irrational. And be saying that God can't do something is giving, so to speak, a fault in God and saying that God is unable to do something. The way they look at it, assuming that everything God does is rational places, a great limitation is on God. God is the architect of human logic, not its prisoner. Let's see it in text number two from the words of the Rajma. It is clear that the beliefs that we have that are rooted in our tradition and those that are sourced in prophetic revelations cannot be falsified by logic. The truth is that no one would deny a truth that is accepted on faith unless he was of those who deny the possibility of anything that is naturally or physically impossible. Those who say that the impossible is impossible, even for God, is as if they assert that nothing transcends their own logic. But the truth is that the transcendent God oversees natural law. He can and does change it on occasion, for he is the master to preserve it or to change it. The mystics argue, who created the idea, the logic, that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and it can't equal 5? God. So if 
decides that he wants to change it, he'll change it. God is not banned by logic because we human beings rationalize and understand it. We came after the effect. God is not after the effect. God is not subservient to the way we understand things. Just because I don't have a logical explanation for something, or just because I can't explain it to you, doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. So from God's perspective, God can make you anything. I, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Since what doesn't have to make sense, that's why he's God and we're human. <laughs> so back to the original question, if you were to take the original question, the rationalist will say that it's impossible for God to make a rock that he can't become. Why? Because it's beyond logic. How can God do something that he can't do? While the Kabbalists or the mystics will say, on the contrary, Jewish mysticism will argue and say, yes, God could, because that will be limiting God. Ah, it doesn't make sense? So what? So what we have over here is two different responses. Hasidism comes along, and the Hasidic masters, and come and they bring a nice synthesis to the two approaches. They take the two rationales and they bring it together. The Hasidic masters, they side with the mystics, as you can imagine. That just because it's impossible for the finite human being to comprehend it doesn't mean that it's impossible for it to happen. Just because we don't understand it doesn't mean it can't happen. God inherently is unconstrained. But at the same time, Hasidus tells us and does not deny the rationalistic position, but it says that God takes on the rationalistic position. Let's give an example. Imagine you're playing a game with your children. But you're the one that makes the game. You set the rules of the game. When you sit down to play with your children that game, what are you doing? You are abiding. You decide that you want to play by those rules. But can you come along and change the rules? Of course I can change the rules. I made the rules. I'm deciding to play by the rules that I created. But can I change the rules if I'd like to? Of course I could. The same idea is also God created logic. He created rationality. God chose to create a universe that runs on logic and rationality. Therefore, in a world that God created, you can't go north and south at the same time because he created that rule. But can he suspend the rules and say, I want north and south to happen at the same time? Absolutely. That means he just can be. Just what happens over here is what the Hasidic point of view is doing. It's taking both angles, taking the mystic's angle that yes, God can do anything, but at the same time, it's telling us he chose to constrain himself by logic and rationale. So it's like we had in all the other classes: the yes and the no. Yes, he is not constrained, but no, he did constrain himself, and to be able to allow himself to limit in how he's going to relate to the world. Let's just see it inside, and I'll take your question in just a moment. Got it? Let's see it inside the words of the Rebbe in text number 3 on page 144. All the rules of logic were created by God. It follows that he who created these rules is not constrained by them, God forbid. And Rabbi Shlomo ben Adaret, that's the Rashba that we mentioned before on page 144, in his known responsum, it is impossible for anything to be impossible for God. When certain Jewish philosophers claim that some possibilities are impossible even for God, they were referring to God as he chose himself 
to confine to the rules of logic. That means once God decides that I want to confine to the rules of logic, he says, I'm going to play by the game I made. But can he suspend the game and say, okay, I don't want to play by the rules? He could, technically. But he chose to be able to be in the rules. Yes? Yeah, I was just, um, you know, a lot of science, they're talking about, like, beyond the dimensions that we know of. So, like, up to, like, 12 dimensions. So, we, in the three-dimensional world, we can only perceive four dimensions. So, maybe in some of the higher dimensions that we can't really even comprehend or conceive, other than... Well, good point. This goes back to what we spoke about in the first place. There might be a situation where north and south can be at the same time. So you're saying even in a physical level. In space, yeah. Okay. But what we're saying is that at the end of the... You know, it's it's beyond our understanding, so based on the question... I I hear what you're saying. You're saying that there could be a dimension that we don't live in, so to speak, or we're not even able to fathom that it could live in soon. But we're trying to take everything that we're looking at, we're looking at a world that we live in, to what the dimension that we are. And then we're looking at it from God's perspective. And our question is from a purely philosophical one, from God's perspective, can it be done? And that's where we have the two responses. What you're suggesting is that even in a physical world, that maybe from a dimension that we don't know, maybe it could happen. But that's a separate discussion, because that over there, then we come into a whole new idea of dimensions that we haven't experienced from previous and past and future. But that's well, a separate... What I was saying is that that supports your saying yeah, I, I, that God could make 2 plus 2 equal 4. I am. Okay. Right? So until now what we had over here is a conundrum. The conundrum that we were dealing with is, number one, the rationalists were saying that God is a constraining view, while the mystics said that God has, has a, an expansive view. And we're going to get to an interesting point that you mentioned that we're going to see in a moment. Hasidism tells us that God can do both. Hasidism teaches us and says that there can be an expansive view and a constrained view, but God decided to constrain himself, and because of that, in this world, God is constrained. Understandably, based on this understanding, if God chooses at any time to suspend the rules, let's go back to that for a moment, he can. And therefore, there are times as well as we're soon going to see in a moment, where God says, yes, I want to suspend the rules. So therefore, let's take the two ideas. From the rationalistic perspective, God is limited, is constrained. From the mystic perspective, there's no constraints whatsoever. Hasidism tells us, the bottom line is, God is not constrained. When he decides, he can constrain himself to the rules of logic that he made. But over here, we started with the question, which is, and we said that there were two examples. Examples that relate to creation, for example, going north and south, and examples that relate to God. We will be able to see over here now, when we close this answer, two examples where God decides to suspend the rules and defies logic, rationale, within A, the creation, and B, in the second case, of a godly case. Let's start with the creation one. A logical impossibility in creation. I'm sure you're all familiar with the Holy Temple. In the Holy Temple, there was a place called the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies, there was a something called the Ark. The Ark measured one and a half cubits by one and a half cubits by two and a half cubits. That was the size of the Ark. So if you look over here at the Ark, if you take the complete width of the Ark, it was two and a half cubits. 
from wall to wall, if you were to measure when the Holy Temple was built, was 20 cubits from one wall to wall. However, if you measured on the side of the ark, you had 10 cubits here and 10 cubits there. It wasn't an optical illusion. It was a reality. You measured from wall to wall was 20 cubits. You measured from side to side of the ark was 10 cubits. Where did those two and a half extra cubits disappear to? The Talmud uses the terminology the place of the ark did not take up any space. If a person was looking at this and measured, they saw an illogical response of God, an illogical reality. What they saw over here was the ark was sitting there taking up space, but when you measured it, it was not taking up any space. The ark occupied space in its precise dimensions, but at the same time, it did not occupy space. So we see over here what God did in the language of the Kabbalah, in the language of Hasidism, it's called Nimna Hanimnois. Finite and infinite experienced at the same time. Like if you would ask the question, did God expand the walls? He didn't expand the walls. Did he make the ark smaller? He didn't make the ark smaller. So to put it in a more philosophical term, to get the eye through, to get the elephant through the eye of the needle, did he make the eye of the needle bigger or did he make the elephant smaller? Neither. They were both exactly the same way and he made it fit. It was an illogical constraint which fit and he made it possible. This is why the Holy Temple was so holy. Because within the Holy Temple, one was able to experience finite and infinite coming together an illogical experience in this physical world. Within creation, you have that experience of the north and south at the same time. Yes? Um, I, I had heard somewhere that the eye of the needle wasn't actually like a needle that you would thread. I, it's just a, a metaphor. Yeah. Uh, it's just a metaphor. I'm just yeah. going to use that. Okay, now. So here we have one case. Now let's go to the example of God limiting himself. God limiting himself is actually a, a, the actual example of a rock that God created that he can't lift. Actually, there are many of them. And the many of them are walking around. I think there are uh, how many of them? 15 billion people in this world? All different kind of rocks that God created. You are that rock. Every creature that God created in the universe is under God's control. From the sun to the moon to the smallest of gnats has a purpose and is there for a reason and is controlled by God. Every single element, every single motion, every single blade of grass, as we know the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, the very fact that a leaf turns over many different times is because it has a purpose in this world. But what did God do? He took the human being, who is a rock, seemingly could have controlled it, and said, guess what? You now have freedom of choice. You have freedom of choice that you can actually decide to rebel against God. To be an atheist, to be a heretic. So God created within creation. He created every single creature in the universe which is seemingly under God's control. Where he has its limitations and has the finite control. But at the same time he says, you the human being cannot control humans. He lets them do whatever they want. Now he lets them do whatever they want. But they may get needed the punishments for it afterwards. They may do whatever they want, but it doesn't mean that their choices are good or bad. 
they're going to have to deal with the consequences of their choices, as we'll get to in a moment. But what God is seemingly doing, the, incap- the, or the great, infinite, great, masterful God who controls everything at every single moment, says one second. He's all of a sudden incapable of allowing people to make terrible choices, of stopping them from this. Because what's God saying? God is telling every single one of us, God created you. He says, I'm not going to lift you. You need to lift yourself. You need to make that choice to become a better person. I'm not going to do it for you. And over here we see within the God creation, he created a rock that he can't lift. He says, you need to lift it. You need to pick it up. Because that's the way God decided. Within the creation to create something that he technically could control, but he gives up control. It doesn't mean that God doesn't run the world because if you make the wrong choices, boy, will you find out. Some way, some time, or some shape. But at the same time, what God is telling every single one of us, I suspend my control to you and even allow you to do a go against my will. Here's a little video that gives us a little better understanding on that concept. Nothing's impossible for God, yet he chooses to confine himself 
by the constraints of logic. Any questions before we move to the next question? Okay, question number two. Does God for knowledge preclude our free choice? This is a question that I'm sure you've had once before. And once we're on the topic of free choice, because we just ended with free choice, so let's go on to a related concept of free choice. The principle of free choice, as you know, is something which is enshrined in the Torah as a central pillar of Judaism. In the words of Moses, in the words of Moses right before his passing, he gathers the entire Jewish people together. And in the book of Deuteronomy, he tells them, page 146, text number 4, See, I set before you today life and good, death and evil. I call upon the heaven and the earth to serve as a witness that I have informed. You I have set before your life and death the blessing of curse. Choose life. What is Moshe telling the Jewish people? You have a choice. Life is full of choices. Life is full of choices. You want it? Life is a choice. You want? Pick. Here you have in front of you. But the question is, one second, are we all just robots? As we know, freedom of choice may be a pillar of Judaism, but how does that work? If God knows what we're going to choose, where is my choice? Are my choices all scripted? Am I just acting out my part in the play? And I really don't have a choice? I'm making believe? And as we mentioned, this topic has been discussed for choices for millennia and probed and asked what's going on over here. And we're going to see what Rabbi Moshe Al-Mosanino, known as the Pirkei Moshe, explains as follows. And this is, as I said, one approach. Here are deeper and more philosophical approaches, but we're picking the more concise and easier approach because we're just going to touch upon it and not have an entire class about it. Text number five, page 147. Here's an analogy that will clarify the matter. Suppose I see Ruvain running. While he is certainly running, his running isn't compelled by my knowledge and observation of his running. Although my knowledge is absolute, his running is by his choice. The same applies to divine knowledge. God's foreknowledge, our choices, doesn't, compete, doesn't compel our choice because God transcends and our future in his present. Just as our knowledge of current events doesn't compel those events, so does his knowledge of our future choices not compel our choice. When we look at knowledge, what does knowledge mean? Just because I know something doesn't compel you to do it. In the words of Rabbi Moshe Moziano, he explains, he says, if I see a person running, that I tell him to run? But I know that if he's starting to run here, he's going to be running over there also. Did my knowledge change his choice? Absolutely not. So my knowledge, just because I know something, doesn't make you change your choice. I just was able to predict what your choice will be. God being past, present, and future knows what we're doing. Because of that, he knows what our choices will be as well. Ask any couple. Ask the husband what he's having for dinner. Or what he should have for dinner. His wife will tell him what he's supposed to have for dinner. <laughs> or ask any wife, what is the re ask any husband, what would be the response when he starts making a U-turn? What his wife is going to say. He doesn't have to 
tell his wife what to say. He is not forcing her to make that choice. He can predict what that same statement is going to be. Right? And the same is the opposite. In every single relationship and in every single scenario, we can predict, not only predict, but because we know from experience or because we see and observe what's happening, we are able to understand and see what's happening. So our knowledge doesn't compel what us to happen. God knows that we will cho choose. Not because He predetermined our choice, but just because He knows our choice. So therefore the same when we talk about God, who is timeless, and the future is the present. He doesn't know what we chose because He predetermined, so we're not robotic. We actually have free choice. But because He knows what we chose, so therefore... It's like he read the end of the novel before starting it. So he knows already the outcome. Is he changing the story? Absolutely not. If a person sees a rock coming towards him, is he going to say, okay, I'll just, stay, I'll just stay there because maybe the rock will take a different turn and maybe we'll be able to make a choice to decide to move anywhere? No, you know that when a rock is being thrown at you, it's probably going to hit you. So therefore you move out of the way. The same idea is also, the very fact that I know something didn't change that person's character. God knowing what we did didn't change the character. So if you answer the question simply, but because he sees what we will choose. The answer to the question, very short one, does God's foreknowledge preclude our free choice? God's foreknowledge isn't the cause of our choice, but it is an outcome of what we chose. And therefore, he already knows it. He is in the future. And therefore, he knows what we chose, and therefore doesn't change what our choice is. Here's another question that we're going to go to today. And this one is a little more, a little more depth to it. Is there anything that God finds difficult to do? Anybody? Sorry? What? Punishing someone. Punishing someone? Okay. Well, let's start with this. In the book of Genesis, begins with what? Saying that God created the universe. And the book of Genesis says, how did God create the universe? It doesn't say he took a hammer and a chisel and made the world. He spoke. And you'll find throughout the book of Genesis in the first chapter, many times it's going to use the terminology, and God said, and the world came about. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let there be a universe, and there was a universe. He said, let there be grass, and there was grass. Let there be animals, and there were animals. And so on and so forth. The only thing that he actually created was the human being. Okay? Why does God use this terminology? And why does the Torah use the terminology, and God spoke, and there was? Why does any create it? Like by human being. The Medrash says the following. Text number six. By the word... Of God, the heavens are made. Rabbi Yehuda ben Shimon said, God created his world without toil or exertion. Rather, there was the word of God, and already the heavenly, the heavens were made. Limited beings have things they could do and they can't do. God is infinite. He can do everything. Generally, why do we find things difficult to do? Because there's a lot of exertion, you don't have the capabilities of doing it, you don't have the tools, you don't have the talent, or just very difficult. When we talk about difficult, 
things that are difficult for a variety of reasons. But the reason why something is difficult is because you are finite. You have a limited capa capability in whatever realm or spectrum it may be in. However, for God, who is infinite, why does it have to be exertion? Since when does God exert himself? Since when is something difficult for God? The concept of something being difficult seemingly can't apply to God. God is infinite. So what if he has to bang a million times? A million times, a trillion is nothing to God. He's infinite. So how can we talk about and say, God spoke because there was no exertion? Why should there be exertion? But as we already know, and as, as we will learn throughout this course, nothing's that bad as simple. So even though we just answered that there's nothing difficult for God, there must be that there is something difficult for God. But how is that possible? It's difficult to think of. Well, let's, interestingly enough, the Torah, the Talmud says that there are two things that are difficult for God. Text number 7-8. Rabbi Barbar Hanna says that Rabbi Yochanan says it is as difficult for God to match a couple together as it was the splitting of the Red Sea. Okay. Matchmaking, God says, is difficult. So what's the first thing? What's the paradigm of difficulty for God? Splitting of the sea. What's just as difficult? Matchmaking. And the Talmud says one more thing. Text number 70. Providing a person's livelihood is difficult for God as the splitting of the Red Sea. For it says he provides food to all flesh. And the nearby is the verse, to him who divided the sea into, into parts. So listen to this. God has problem difficulty. Number one. What's his number one difficulty thing? Splitting the sea. He thought that was easy, the Jewish people crossing the sea. God had a hard time with it. Number two, matchmaking. Matchmaking is as difficult as splitting the sea. And number three, making a living. You thought you were having a hard time making a living? God has to make sure that all the 15 billion people in the world can make a living. That's pretty tough. Why these three things? Why are these three things that we use the terminology difficult? The Zohar explains. And here we go into some Kabbalah. Why specifically these three things? The Zohar addresses this question and says, text number eight. When God wishes to do something, all before him is a naught, as nothing can stand in his way. Yet you say that the splitting of the sea is way difficult. When God desired to split the sea for the Jewish people, Rach of the Archangel of Egypt protested before God. Master of the universe, why do you exact justice upon the Egyptians but split the sea for the Jews? They are guilty before you. They both are servitals. They have both committed sexual wrongs. They have both committed murder. Aren't you the way of just and true? At that moment, it was difficult for God to override his sense of justice. What's the difficulty here? What's the Zohar telling us? And the Zohar is saying as follows. God has diff two different types of modes. In heaven, and the way God created the world, there are two types of modalities. In Hebrew, it's called Midas Hadin and Midas Arachamim. Midas Hadin means a way of judgment. That means God is particular. You're standing in front of a court, you did something wrong, you will be judged for it. 
Your misdeeds are calculated. There are required consequences that come with it. There is no monkeying around. You did something wrong, you're going to pay for it. And in Midas Adin, when it comes into a way of judgment, every person is assessed to what they've done. Did you do good? You're good. You didn't do good, you get punished for it. There's no monkey business. It's like a boy, you come to your boss, you want to raise? Let me see. Let me see productivity. We don't just give things out. That's Midas Adin. That's judgment. But then there is also Midas Arachim. God is merciful. He cares for the individual. When you care about somebody, you don't look at what they did. You don't look at their productivity. You look at how can I help you? What can I do for you? Like a father to a child, like a parent that cares about their child. It's not because of what they did, it's because of who they are that you care about them. And therefore, regardless of what the person did, the definition of mercy means that though I may be guilty, I'm still asking for a second chance. You don't ask for mercy if you're innocent. You ask for mercy when you see that the odds are against you. You ask for mercy when even though you may be in the guilty, or you may be something coming down at you, and you say, please, spare me. That's where mercy, compassion comes in. Now let's go back to the story of the splitting of the sea. The splitting of the sea over here comes with two types of people. You have the Egyptians and you have the Jews. Over here God is doing two things at the same time. He is enacting judgment against the Egyptians. He is telling the Egyptians, you wronged the Jews for 210 years and therefore you're going to be thrown into the sea, drowned and destroyed, null and void forever and ever. And at the same time he's putting the Jews through dry land and they're walking to safety. Comes the archangel and tells God, one second, where's your judgment? Why are the Egyptians being drowned? Because what they did wrong. Look at the Jews. They also did something wrong. They should also be drowned. Why are you saving these and drowning these? God over here did something highly unusual. He was working with both modalities at the same time. Even though the Jews, if I would go by judgment, they would be wiped away, drowned just like the Egyptians because they were serving idols, they did everything wrong just as well. They were undeserving. There was nothing that said save the Jews because of a quality that they did. They were idol worshippers. They did all these terrible acts. They were assimilated with the Egyptians. But God said, no, these are my children. I have compassion. I have mercy on them. I'm going to save them. Mixing these two modalities, doing these two together at the same time, is what was difficult. Not that it was difficult for God, but the word difficult we talk about over here, it was ad of the ordinary. It was not something that was usual. It was highly ununderstandable. It was something which doesn't make sense in a regular case. Why over here am I exacting justice and over here exacting mercy? Why am I mixing the two together? Why am I working in two modalities? This is not what God usually does. And therefore was considered something of difficulty. Punishing the Egyptians and saving the Jews. Seemed like two different types. As simultaneously employing both characteristics. Not that God can do it because God is infinite. 
Not that it was difficult for him the way we understand the word difficult. Difficult is a terminology for us because we know we can't behave into that same modality at the same time. For a human being to be able to be judgment and merciful at the same time is opposite. It doesn't work together. And therefore, when we talk about difficulty in this case, it was out of the ordinary for God to do such a type of behavior. So when we talk about in this case, this is what the sages mean when it says difficult. Difficult means out of the the ordinary action of using a dual forces simultaneously. So then you may ask, where does this come then to matching up a human being by making a match and making a personal living? How does that work together? So Hasidism takes it a step deeper. And deeper in unveiling a whole new layer of talking about how these coexisting forces reign and how it all works and how the whole operating system, if you want to call it, from God's transcendence into this world operates. What does this mean? In Hasidic language and Kabbalistic terminology, there is something called the Eid Sof, the infinite light from above. The infinite light from above, for it to shine in this world, is impossible. Because it's too great and too strong. A world, a materialistic world, material and spiritual, are by definition opposite. How then can a spiritual God create a materialistic, finite world? There had to be something, what we call in Hasidism, a tzimtzum, a refrain, a contrast, a constriction. And in order for that constriction... God decides that he wants to limit himself. Meaning, as we mentioned before, God is infinite, but he also has the ability to decide, I want to be finite. There's a very famous Kabbalistic teaching, and what one of them say, that the same way God has the power to be infinite, he has the power to be finite. Because if not, then you're limiting God's infinity. So God has the ability to say, I want to be finite. So what did God do with this great infinite light? He contracted it. And he made it go through some type of prism that man had multiple colors, which we call today the ten sephirot, the ten different channels of energy that came into this world. Those ten different channels are now finite beings, finite energy in them. They are fused by infinite energy, so therefore to our level of understanding they're infinite, but compared to the exact light where it came from, they're finite. And therefore, once they came down to that level, what result happened? We had a creation. Because of that, we have now laws of nature. And because of that, God's presence is concealed. Because you cannot have within a finite world a revelation of infinite. So that by the very fact of God exacting His infinite light and, con- and contracting it into those prisms, into those tents of Yerot, doesn't, conceals the great light of God. In fact, in Hebrew, the word olam, which means world, comes from the word helen, concealment. The moment the world was created as a finite space, it automatically concealed the infinite light of Godliness. That is our objective, to bring the light of, world, of God into the world, but the concept of how God came about creating the world automatically was through this type of system. Now, normally, God works through finite energies. 
Because that's the way he created the world. By creating finite energies, what does that mean? Because of that, there's laws of nature. Nature, by definition, is finite. The sun goes up the morning, goes down by night. But at the same time, though God's presence is here, it's concealed behind this veil of nature. And for that reason, there are those that want to say that God doesn't exist. They're all looking at nature. Now let's go back to the splitting of the sea. What did the splitting of the sea do? The splitting of the sea overrode both of these ideas. What happened by the splitting of the sea? Nature no longer existed. Why? Because the water went up instead of going down. A big ocean became dry land. People walk through on dry land, and then the rest of the people will drown inside. Nature ceased to exist for the moment. What happened with the Jews that were walking through the dry land? What did they see? They said, this is God. They saw godliness. Godliness was no longer concealed. So when it came to the crossing of the sea, automatically the laws of nature were suspended, and God's presence was revealed. Both characteristics of what the world is usually all about stopped, ceased to exist. So when we look at this, we look at this idea that the splitting of the sea was not an instance where God said, here's one way of nature and I'm going to replace it. Here's one way of modality of me working and here's a new one. He took the existing way how he creates the world that water should flow down and said, I'm going to stop it. He took the existing understanding that generally I can't see God and now they were able to see God. That means it was within the logic, within the system that he created, he broke it. The rules that he made, he suspended. That's infinity transcending. That's God's way of transcending in this world. Let's see it inside in the words of the fifth Chabad Rebbe how he explains it in the Hasidic discourse. Text number 9 on page 154. Why is the splitting of the sea considered difficult? At the splitting of the sea there was a revelation of God's infinity and transcendence that permeated the finite system of creation and caused the change in the laws of nature. <coughs> this is so to speak difficult. Not because it is difficult in the literal sense for God to accomplish this. After all, God created nature and is certainly it is not difficult for him to institute changes in the system that he created. But it is difficult in the sense that it constitutes a change from the default that God has set into place. For God to express himself in a finite fashion within the sphere of finite creation is not difficult. For God express himself in an infinite fashion is also not difficult. However, for God to express and reveal his infinite energy within the finite world, that is, so to speak, difficult. As explained, as the splitting of the sea, there was a revelation of God's infinity and transcendence that permeated the finite system of creation. To the point of laws of nature were suspended that the sea transformed into dry land. Moreover, the entire concept of the event was a revelation of the infinite light of God that was patently revealed here in this world. So here again we see the word difficult. As we mentioned before, it doesn't mean that it was difficult as hard, difficult out of the ordinary. 
out of the ordinary that we have two types of behaviors coming together at the same time. Finite and infinite. The way that God created nature, suspending it, and at the same time seeing godliness within the finite. Something unusual. Something highly never done. And that's why it's considered difficult. So now let's go back to the other two examples of why they're so difficult. Now that we understand why the splitting of the sea is so difficult, how does this apply to matchmaking and making a living? According to Jewish mysticism, both of these blessings are not products of the system. When we talk about making a living or matchmaking, they both reach beyond the system. They extend into the infinite light of God. So let's start with the light of one. What happens when it comes to making a living? If we were to decide that only people that are deserving get to eat bread, many of us would be starving. If we would say that only people who believe in God get to make a living, there will be many people that don't make a living. So when God gives people sustenance, the ability to eat food on their table, it's not for one moment do you think you because you deserve it. Because God decided in His infinite kindness that you should get it. And therefore, the way God looks at it is at the same time, where God says, yes, there are people that deserve a blessing, He is giving those that are undeserving of giving a blessing. At the same time, these blessings, where are these blessings happening? They're not happening eye in the sky, but right on your dining room table and your paycheck that you're getting in your box every single time. That is because God is giving you a blessing every single time, whether you deserve it or not. He don't check a box and say, okay, I behave this week, I'm getting my check. You expect to get it regardless of what you've done. Yet although God provides from His infinite energy and His blessing materialize in our physical being, the combination again of both, the deserving, the judgment, and the mercy, the deserving and the undeserving, the finite and the infinite coming together. That's why it's difficult. This similar idea comes to when it comes to making a match. Text number 10. It is a tremendous feat to split the entity that is intrinsically one, such as a sea, into two distinct parts. It is a similar spectacular feat to join two entities that are in essence distinct. Just the splitting sunders something indivisible singular cell to it is equally challenging to create a unified entity out of entities. They are essentially distinct as a man and woman. This peering and uniting requires a supernatural input. The Baal Rabbi Hudalohi is explaining over here and says, what happened with the Red Sea? He's using the sea as, an, as, a, as a type of a metaphor. Does the sea usually split? Absolutely not. The very fact that God split the sea is because it was something irrational. Something that usually doesn't happen, taking one thing and splitting it into two. The same idea is also one plus two, one plus one is supposed to equal two. You one plus one, you have one plus one, what do I get usually? Two. What happens when a person gets married? I get one plus one, and I want one. I don't want two. If I want two, then I got a problem. Each person in the universe are individuals. And over here God is saying, I'm taking two individuals, to borrow the very famous term, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, coming from two opposite sides, 
And all of a sudden I'm putting them together. I'm taking these two entities and putting them as one. God transcends the differences between people and puts them together. At the same time, where does he do it? How does he do it? He puts it within the realm of a relationship that they should get along, cohabitate, live together, bring in a new generation of people in this world. Marriage represents a transcendent expression of God's presence within the limited individual. It doesn't make sense that these two people get together. But God says, yes, they can get together. God brings them together. And therefore, when they come together as one, it is infinite light. And therefore, what does it tell us? That there are three partners and a child. The father, the mother, and God. Because God is what puts them together. Otherwise, they can't be together. That's why if you look in just a little uh, sidetrack over here, in the Hebrew letters, man and woman have the same letters, Aleph and Shin. The only difference is, in the man there's Ish, there's a Yud, and in the woman there's a Hey. Yud and Hey makes God's name. When there's God, then you have a man and a woman. You take out God, it's fire, disappears. You can't have them together. If God's not in the marriage, if God is not in the relationship, the relationship dissipates. The relationship doesn't exist. The only way that you can take these two opposites and make them one is because there's a godly, infinite spirit within the finite individual. And yet they come together as a single unit. What do you see over here? Again, the difficulty. Why is it difficult? Because simultaneously, you're having an infinite energy into a finite human being. Yes, what's your question? So if God is busy making these matches, then we as individuals don't have free choice in who we choose to marry. That's a very good question. The Talmud asks that question. And the Talmud asks, what does it mean that God is matching them? So most commentators on the Talmud say that this is referring to a second marriage. That a first marriage, because the Talmud asks a better question. Because the question that says, it says in the Talmud that a voice from heaven comes down and says, this person is destined to marry this one, and this one is destined to marry this one. So the Talmud asks, if already God preordained who you should marry, what's he having a hard time trying to put them together? He already announced it from heaven. So the Talmud says, that's on the first marriage, and this is going on the second marriage. So where's the first marriage? Huh? Where's the first No, that the first marriage is destined, is destined the voice of heaven, and the second marriage is what God is having challenges, difficulty, what we want to talk about putting together. But to answer your question, even though we're talking about difficulty put them together, at the end of the day, you have that choice to be together. And that's why I said you have that choice to bring God into that relationship to make that marriage work. There are many people who God puts together, and for some reason they decided to keep the broker out of the marriage, and the marriage falls apart. So let's answer our question. Is there anything that's too difficult for God to do? Nothing is essentially too difficult for God. However, an act of God that simultaneously features dueling divine energies, we call it difficult because it's out of the ordinary. Let's go to our final question for today. If God has decided to do something, can we change his mind? So as we explained earlier, we have free choice, right? That means there are areas, in the areas of morality, we have absolute freedom to choose right or wrong. We come to the fork in the road, God is waiting for us, as Maimonides tells us, you have the choice to be as righteous as Moses or as evil as Jeroboam. 
That's up to you. But what happens to us is preordained by God. The question is, if what happens to us because of our choices are preordained, do we have any choice or do we have any option in changing that preordained event? Can we cause God to have a change of heart? And say, you know what? Come on. Give me a second chance. Anybody? But wouldn't he know in advance that we would try to do that? <laughs> wouldn't he know in advance? That we would have tried to change his mind. So I'm asking you, even if he knew in advance, so the, the question becomes better. The question becomes stronger. So is there a way? Does God ever regret what he did? Let me put it that way. Does God ever regret doing something? No. You sure? He made the bed too big in the avocado. Huh? <laughs> Five bigger avocados. Okay. <laughs> so you know the story about the fellow. Rabinowitz is talking to his friend Berkowitz. And he asks him, they're both potential clients, they both work together, they're partners. And he says, well, there's this big potential client coming in on Saturday, and uh, I need you to be here. To be able to make sure to hook him in, that we get the business. To which Berkowitz talks about it and says, listen here, I'm sorry. I'm not going to be able to be in. I'm going to shul on Saturday. Shabbos. <coughs> so he says, shul? I thought you were an atheist. Since when do you go to shul on Shabbos? No, no, no. Especially, this is a big deal. We've got to get this client. If we don't get the client, who knows what's going to happen. She says, you're right. I was an atheist. But this was all before I met a good friend of mine. His name was Goldstein. And Goldstein, I don't know if you know Goldstein, but he's a big millionaire. He came as a refugee. Didn't come with a penny in his pocket. And today he's a billionaire. So... What do you have to do with Goldstein? So you're going to shoot just because Goldstein became a billionaire? Why are you going to shoot? So he says, no, 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 you got to understand. I'm not going to shoot. I'm going to, he says, I'm not going to show to talk to God. I'm going to talk to Goldstein. Goldstein <laughs> talks to God. <laughs> um, I didn't even say anything yet. <laughs> we can change God's mind with a minion. With a minion, so you're saying you But let me ask you a question: Does God ever regret what about? Can, does God ever regret something? No. If you're saying you can change his mind, that means he does regret things. So based on what we've learned today, the obviously like you just all answered should be no. How can a timeless God who knows what's going to happen, if everything's preordained, knows what you're going to choose? Why should he regret? He sees the outcome. He sees what's going to happen from it. He knows what the basic bottom line is going to be. It's not like he needs to wait for your decision to happen to see what's going to happen. He knows what's going to happen. So why should he regret it? Because we don't know what's going to happen. So let's find out. In the book of Numbers, this idea is reflected from Bullock and Bilam having a conversation. Where Bullock tells Bilam, I want you to come curse the Jewish people. And Bilam tells him, you got the wrong character. <laughs> Bilam tells him, and Bilam says as follows. Page 156, text number, one, uh, text number 11. Bilam spoke in a parable and said, Arise, Balak, and hear, listen to me closely, son of Sipor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor is he a mortal that he should have a change of heart. 
What he say and not do, speak and not fulfill. Bilaam was telling Balak, you're trying to curse the Jewish people. You're trying to get these Jewish people sorry. God promised them something. He's going to keep to it. God said something. You're not going to change his mind. He's not immortal where today he says one thing, tomorrow says something else. So what do we see from here? As you all correct, God doesn't regret what he does. He knows what he's going to do and he's going to keep to what he does. But as I'm sure you're well experienced that just because I'm proving my point here doesn't mean that I can't prove it absolute. And therefore, as you look in the biblical story of the great flood, what did God say right before he made the flood? Look at God's words in the book of Genesis, text number 12. Text number 12. God saw the great wickedness of the human on earth and in their hearts. Every inclination was consistently evil. God regretted that he made human beings upon the earth and his heart was aggrieved. God said, I will erase the humans whom I created upon the earth from the face of the earth, from the man to the beast, from creeping things to the fowl of heavens, for I regret that I made them. How many times did God say, I regret in these two verses? I think three times. So what's going on over here? Can he regret? Does he regret? Or does he not regret? Over here it looks like God doesn't change his mind. Over here it seems like he does change his mind. And if God knew what the people are going to do in destroying humanity, why did he even make them? Why make them and then make a flood? Just don't make them to begin with. Or just start after the flood. Just start with Noah. What was the purpose of the first thousand generations? Thousand years. So what we see over here, so what we're going to go to first is have a little digression in talking of the book of Genesis and understanding its statement in the beginning of the book of Genesis. In the beginning of the book of Genesis, God says as follows. Bereshiv Barali came in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's the way the book of the Torah begins. The commentary Rashi asks a very famous question and says, one second. What is the Torah? A book of laws. What do I care how God created the heaven and earth and what happened the first thousand years? Start from the book of Exodus and the first law given to the Jewish people. This is the new moon. Start from the first law. Why does he have to tell me the whole history? The Torah is not a history book. The Torah is a book of laws. Tell me laws. Why does the Torah begin with Bereshit, Barley, Kim, in the beginning God created the heaven and earth? That's the first question a Jewish child learns when he re- learns the book of Genesis. Rashi answers the following. Text number 13a. The Torah also have begun with a verse this month you shall be to you, which is the first mitzvah commanded to the people of Israel. Why does it begin with in the beginning God created the heavens and earth? The strength of his words he related to his people to give them the inheritance of the nations. If the nations of the world will say to Israel, you are thieves for having conquered the land of the seven nations, Israel will reply, the entire world is God's. He created it and granted it to whomever he desired. It was his will to give it to the seven nations and it was will his will to take it away and give it to us. What is Rashi telling us here? Rashi, the great Talmudic sage from over a thousand years ago, was actually addressing something. And he quotes even a medrash who was before him 700 years ago. Something today that we hear unfortunately every single day on every single channel. Who gave the land of Israel to the Jewish people? In fact, he doesn't say the Arabs will say. He doesn't say the Muslims will say. 
He says the nations of the world, the same liberal or whoever may be all over the world, the British, the European, they all have the same complaint. Who gave the land of Israel to the Jews? What makes the land of Israel yours? And in the first Rashi over a thousand years ago, Rashi already warns and says, you know who gave it? God gave it to the Jews. But why? What is God telling the Jewish people? They may say you are thieves. Tell them, I'm the one that created the world. I'm the one that took it from them and gave it to them. Look in the words that the rabbi says in text number 13b, page 159. With this, Rashi explains the concept of regret as it is applied to God. It is not regret in the simple sense. That means rather that God's original desire was that first he should give the land to the Canaanites and then afterwards to make it from them and give it to the Jews. The same is true regarding God's regret. Before the flood, once again, it is not regret. In the simple sense, it means rather that God's original desire was to first create a world and then destroy civilization with the flood. This is called a regret because the actual fact, the second thought, originally planned, leads to at least different results. But it's not regret in the simple sense. What is Rebbe explaining to us over here? What is the first Rashi telling us? It is not that God all of a sudden said, okay, I don't want the Canaanites to have the land of Israel. <coughs> Excuse me. I changed my mind. I want the Jews to have it. That's not what Rashi, what does Rashi tell us? From the moment of creation, God said, I'm going to give it to you first, and then I'm going to give it to you next. From the moment God created the universe, he said, I'm going to create a thousand years where people disrupt, destroy, corrupt, and then I'm going to flush it out, and I'm going to do it again. He didn't regret what he did. He changed what he made. Not because he felt bad, because that was the system that he set in place. That means God set up a mechanism. He created a system where people can do things and then he should change course in the middle. The Torah calls it regret, but it is far from regret. We call it regret because it's something different. And therefore Rashi uses the terminology, first he gave the land to the Israel, to the nations, then he gave it to the Jews. The same idea as the Torah refers to a development and change as the word regret. A decision that comes to fruition differently than we initially thought about, we call regret. But does God regret it? On the contrary. That was the mechanism that he set up from the get-go. Based on what we've said, it seems like, really, that God doesn't change his mind. He set up a system. He wants you to A, to happen, then B, to happen, and C, to follow, and that's the system of the mechanism that he sent up. The only problem is that Maimonides, when talking about different prophets, Maimonides says, how do you know if the prophet is legitimate or not? Many people predict things. How do you know if the prediction is correct or incorrect? So he says, if he predicts that something is negative should happen, and it doesn't happen, then he can still be a true prophet. Why? Because negative prophecies can change. <clears throat> Because we can change a negative event through our prayers. But if the prophet comes along and says a positive event will happen, and that event doesn't happen, then he can be a question of a false prophet. Let's see, text number 14 in the words of Maimonides. Prophecies of retribution, for example, if a prophet will say, so-and-so will die, 
In this year there will be a famine or war and the like. If the prophecy does not come true, this does not prove that the prophet is a false prophet. Nor do we say, look at it, we be foretold, and his words were not fulfilled. Because God is slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and is prone to having change of heart regarding meeting punishment. It is possible that the intended recipients of the prophecy repented, and they were forgiven, as was the case with the people of Nineveh, or the retribution will be put on hold, as what was the case with Hezekiah. If, however, a prophet foretold that good would come, and such and such will occur, and good will be prophesied and not materialized, this is surely a false prophet, for any good that God decrees, even a decree is provisional, will never be retracted. So now we know, and we already know that God doesn't change his mind, but over here it seems like he does sometimes change his mind. When God has a thought to act with justice, what happens? Does God change his mind or does God not change his mind? God can have a change of heart regarding meaning out of punishment. But what we see from here is that when it comes to an act of kindness and mercy, there is no mechanism that God employed that it should be stopped. If God wants to do kindness, it's going to happen. There's nothing that's stopping it. Why? Because God created that mechanism. But then God also created a mechanism that if he bets out something negative should happen, we, the people, have the opportunity to stop it, to change it, to pray for it. Like in the story of Jonah and the prophet with the story of Nineveh. Like in the story of Hezekiah. So God doesn't really change his mind when it comes to negative prophecies. But on the contrary, those negative prophecies are there for a call to action. They are there to remind us how we should maybe think about doing something better and how we should repent and how we should think about what we should do and how we should behave. So God created a mechanism within the prophecy, created a mechanism within the world. Not that he regrets, but he created a method that we should be able to understand that we can also avoid judgment. We can also bring upon ourselves mercy. We can bring upon ourselves a greater level of infinite light and change course and things can be overwritten. That means the same God that created the entire system also had an override button. He made the override button. And why did he create that override button? So that we should have that opportunity to repent. He wanted to do things to remind us of how we can connect. So the question to our, what we had was, if God has decided to do something, can we change his mind? God doesn't change his mind, but sometimes, however, he determines from the outset that he'll change course. He creates that mechanism. And there's always a possibility to change his mind from acting with injustice. As we described, there were two ways that God acts, from justice and from mercy. Mercy doesn't change. He's always going to be kind, compassionate. But when there's a method of justice, we always have another chance to be able to change God's mind, so to speak, not that his mind changes, but he created that mechanism that should give us the ability to change his mind. Here's a quick review of what we were doing. Let's just lie. This paradox. One. According to the Jewish mystics, God, who created logic, is the architect of its constraints. Not its prisoner. He can not only do possible, but also fail to think of it. God is timeless, and to him, the future is present. His foreknowledge isn't the cause of our choice. It is the outcome of his observation of our choice. 3. The concept of something being difficult to 
challenging to not apply to God. Nevertheless, when God simultaneously employs dueling divine forces, that is out of the ordinary and turned difficult. Four, a timeless God who knows all that will transpire in the future can't have a change of heart. Sometimes, however, God determines from the outset that first he will take one course of action and later he'll change course. Five, when God determines to act with kindness, no mechanism can change that. From the outset, that is the only possible outcome. However, when God has a thought to act with justice, included in the original thought is always the possibility of changing God's mind and bringing about a kind result. Next week is the course finale, and we're going to talk about some questions that still remain to be explored, which is our relationship with God, per se, why can't we see God, or can we? Can we reconcile God with, Zion, with science? Why is Judaism obsessed with idolatry? What if I'm a spiritual person? Do I still need a Torah system to have a relationship with God? And some other exciting things. Also, next week is Yutas Kislev, as we mentioned, the 19th of Kislev, so we'll have some extra Lachaim. Also, while we're at it, the next course coming up in uh, end of January is going to be Booksmart, course thought through Judaism's most important titles and authors who inscribe them.